Almighty and everlasting God, in Christ you have revealed your glory among the nations. Preserve the works of your mercy, that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession of your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, October the 16th, 2022. And you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Um, It's been a a good week. Uh, I preached at a church um, locally last week. Uh, Enjoyed that very much. Um, We went out of town a couple of days, uh, got together with my brother and his wife and and had a nice dinner together and then had lunch with a bunch of buddies from that I've known for 50 years ish. Um, So it was that was nice. Uh, I had a good time and we've had a good week. So I had a really nice hike yesterday um, and and a really nice time during the day yesterday as well. Um, So anyway, it's been a a good week. Um, Nothing particularly exciting going on. Nothing of note. Um, I called, just so you'll know, I called uh, the the medical examiner's office here in North Carolina. We're six months out since Will died, and so I called to see if, if they were, had an autopsy report yet, and the answer is no, they don't. So we're still waiting to understand what happened. Um, you know, at this point, we're kind of working with the assumption that maybe he had an aneurysm or some sort of a heart thing that happened. We just We just don't know. So we're waiting for that anyway. Um, so, but it's but it's been a good week. I've been able to get to the gym a couple of times, see some friends, do some things. So, um, I'm I'm ready for this next season. You know, it's it's been a long, long journey, and and I'm getting ready to start doing some new things on the podcast, um, on the daily podcast, beginning in in Advent, and then continuing after that. And I've been praying, just so you'll know. Uh, I, I feel like God's calling me to do some things that, that involve more storytelling than just straightforward teaching. You know, um, it, it would be that, but it would also be more in the nature of, of telling stories and telling people's stories particularly. So anyway, just be, keep that in your prayers for me, if you will, that, that God would show me how to do that well um, and, and how to do it correctly. And I'm feeling really nudged in that direction, and I don't know if that's writing or just narrating, so I'm just not sure. So anyway, just keep that in your prayers for me. So today, mainly what I want to talk about is there's a um, there's sort of an aphorism in, in our world today that that's justice delayed is justice denied, and so that's kind of what I want to talk about today, because the, um, the gospel today has to do with the unjust judge and the persistent widow, and Jesus compares the unjust judge with God the Father, as far as justice is concerned. And so I want to talk about what does that mean? What what is Jesus getting at when he says that? And then how do we react when we don't see justice done, when we see it delayed? So that that's kind of what I want to do. So today, I had two choices, just so you'll know, with respect to the Old Testament lesson. The first one was from Jeremiah, and that was the one I, I had honestly planned to talk about this week, and then just I, I was really struggling with it and couldn't kind of get there. I've struggled with this whole thing all week, to be perfectly honest with you. I struggled at a spiritual level, personally, with it all week. So then last night, I took a look at the, the, the optional first reading, and I'm going with that. It's Genesis 32, verses 22 to 31, and it's, it's, so it's, what the setting here is, is that um, Jacob, 
you know, the uh, son of Isaac had had left home because his brother was spitting fire and, and, and breathing threats to kill him. So he and his mother contrived to get the blessing of Isaac to send him away to go find a wife. So he, he went back to where she was from, where Rebecca was from, uh, and goes to see her brother, actually, ultimately, and, and falls in love with one of his daughters. He tricks her, tricks him, Jacob, into marrying his other daughter after seven years of labor that he contracted to marry the first daughter, Rachel. So he instead, that night, he had Leah. So then seven more years go by for Rachel. So he's married to both these sisters. And then more time goes by. So there's 20 years-ish, roughly, that, that go by. And he finally says, I'm out of here. I've had enough of this. Uh, your father's ripped me off, and he's lied to me over and over again. He's deceived me. And Jacob means deceiver, by the way. Jacob's deceptions um, ha- had gotten him into this situation, and now he's he's being deceived by somebody who's better at it than he is. So then he flees, and he goes away. And, and now he's about to go back home and he hears that Esau is coming with 400 men. And so he's afraid. He's afraid that Esau is going to make good on the threat that he made 20-something years before. And so that same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And he was left alone, so he's back behind everybody here. He was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. That is the most bizarre next sentence you'll ever read in your life. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. He was left alone, and then a man wrestled with him. I mean, how bizarre. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So it's like he had the secret move that's going to disable Jacob, and Jacob is not going to win at this point. Then he said, the man, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So what's this deal here, for the day has broken? Well, in Jewish theology, actually, there are angels who roam the earth, but they have a job to do. They have a job to do and a place to be when day breaks, wherever they happen to be. They, they then are, are intended to leave the earth and go back and stand in the presence of the living God. That's the way angelology sees this in Judaism, that because the day has broken, he needs to go, but Jacob's holding on. And we, we know this is an angel because Hosea tells us that, that he's an angel. So that the tradition of, of believing that goes back a long, long way. It goes back to the time of Hosea. So he says... I won't let you go, Jacob does, unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? Because you've got to bless somebody personally. So, and he said, Jacob, which means deceiver. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, which means struggling with God. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So he's today, that night, he has striven with God. Before that, he has striven with men, that would be Laban, and he got his freedom. And he says, you've prevailed. So that's your new name. That's the blessing that I have for you. You're a man who has striven with God and man and has prevailed. That's who you are now. That's the blessing. <clears throat> so then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. 
But he said, why is it that you ask my name? So why did he need the name? I mean, that's a good question. Why did you need my name? You're not going to bless me. I don't receive blessing from human beings. Why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. The man blessed Jacob. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So in in Jacob's mind, he has striven with God in this place. And that's exactly what this, quote, man told him. You've striven with God. And he says, For I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So he named the place Peniel in the same way that he was in a place on the way to Laban's, and he was in a place called Luz, and there he saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder going up into heaven. And he says, surely I was in the presence of God, and I didn't know it. And so he changed the name of Luz to Bethel, house of God. So he'll end up actually going back there to live for a season of time. So here he calls this place Peniel. I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. Face of God is Peniel, something like that. Uh, it, it, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. So that, that passage, we get this Peniel and then Penuel. Well, are those two different places? Well, it's, it's a difficult thing to sort out, but, but the best way to kind of look at it is to understand this, that Peniel means face of God, and Peniel also means I have seen God here, and Penuel means God was seen here. You see the difference? So one of them is passive and one of them is personal. I have seen God here. God was seen here. So I would call it Penuel, he would call it Peniel. So what we get is, is now he's ready, he's already dealt with his recent past, now he's got to deal with the, with the distant past. And so now he's going to go, and he's going to go before everybody. He's going to walk first, and he's going to walk with that limp to remind him of that. And so here he goes, and now he's got to go meet his brother, the one who had been threatening to kill him. It's a, a poignant moment in a million different ways, and, and I'm going to have to go ahead and tell you the rest of the story while we're here. And so what, what happens, right? So he goes forward. He's heard that Esau has 400 men with him, and he's coming to meet him, and Jacob assumes the very worst in this. So he goes before everybody. His brother greets him, and it's wonderful. And Jacob becomes like the most subservient and obsequious guy in the world. He continues to call him, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord. He, he's, he's still afraid. He is humbling himself before his brother, the one who threatened to murder him. We could have repeated Cain and Abel right there. But time and space get involved. And so in these 20 years, Esau has made a life for himself, and he's done well. He has prospered. But more than that, He's not the same impetuous man that he was before. No, he shows his brother mercy, and he invites him to come and be with him. Jacob declines because he's still not sure about this change of heart, so he declines and goes his own way. But, but it's interesting how Jacob does that, and because and the, the question becomes, well, so what does he do? And he says, he sends a present to his brother, and Esau says, I don't need that. And Jacob says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present 
from my hand, for I have seen your face. Remember, face of God, Peniel. I have seen your face, Esau, which is like seeing the face of God. He's just seen the face of God. Uh, Jacob is one of the very few people who could actually say, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. And in that little piece right there, what we can see is he's going to love God and love his neighbor because he comes up and says, you have accepted me. You didn't kill me. Please accept. So you have accepted me. So please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt gracious with me and because I have enough. And thus he urged him and he took it. And so this peace is established between these two brothers, but peace is established not through the gift that Jacob gives him. It's the other way around. Peace is established because Esau has mercy on Jacob. And then he gives him a gift to celebrate that peace that exists already between the two of them. And that's what a peace offering looked like in Deuteronomy. You celebrated a peace that already existed. You didn't make a sacrifice to establish peace. No, peace with God was something to be celebrated. And here, that's exactly what it is. Take the gift. Before it was a bribe, now it's a gift to celebrate the peace that's been established between the two of us. So we're going to talk here in a second. We're going to begin talking about justice in this gospel lesson, and that's primarily where we're going to stand for a bit. And the gospel lesson we get is, is Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So continue to pray, even if you don't see a result. Continue, he says, to pray for that. And I had a friend whose wife had fallen, and, and she had um, damaged her Cossack's bone, which is the bone right at the end of your spine. And she had damaged that. And there was a nerve entrapped in there, and it was very, very painful for her to sit. And so he, we were talking about this one day, because this went on for quite a long time. And he said, you know, I don't know how many times I can pray, uh, Lord, please heal Nancy. Lord, heal Nancy, please. Please heal Nancy, Lord. <laughs> so it, it's it, you know, over and over, he says, I, I don't know what to do. And so he, they were proactive about it. They went and visited doctors here, there, and yon. And um, finally... They did procedure after procedure, and then finally it, it came on entrapped, and so her pain ceased at that point. But, but his struggle was, why do I keep praying when I don't see an answer for this? And, and I've certainly experienced that in my life. I have certainly experienced that in my life. There's something for which I've prayed for 18 years now, and it's never worked itself out. I prayed for Will every single day. For a long, long period of time, when his when his anorexia started about 15 years ago, it, it was a struggle and a challenge and a trial. And I prayed and prayed and prayed, and then we, you know, lost him. And th- that was not what I was praying for. So w- w- it's it's struggle when you pray for so long, and you can hear it in Abraham when God comes and, and promises him things after he goes and rescues Lot and defeats the kings, and God promises him great things, and he and basically his response is, well, big deal. Big deal if I have all this stuff. It, what difference does it make? There's I don't have a child. It's the only thing that I actually wanted is a child, so I don't even care about all this stuff that I have. I, what I want is a child. And so had he given up, well— Kind of, because when God tells them we're going to have a, you're going to have a child in a year, they both laugh 
at the ridiculousness of that statement. It's way beyond the ability of either one of them in the natural to do so. And so Jesus here says, he, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Very rare that you get that kind of a statement as prelude to the, to the parable itself. Luke's telling us exactly what Jesus is trying to convey. Always pray, don't lose heart. So he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For while he refused, for a while he refused, but afterward he, the judge, said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice, so that she won't beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So the, the parable is very simple. This woman continues to pester this judge who neither fears God nor respects man. She continues to pester him until he comes to the point where he says, Look, I'm not going to make this decision and give her justice because I fear God or respect man. No, I'm going to do it because I'm tired of hearing this, and she's just going to keep on and on and on. It's haranguing me until I give her justice. Well, why in the world? <laughs> you know, this is somebody who arrogates power for himself and is going to choose to hold that power. He could do justice. He chooses not to. Why? Because it gives him power. And I, I think that's one of the things that, that I admire so much about Esau and his conduct here in this story with Jacob. He, he's held on to this grudge probably for a very long time. But ultimately, he clearly decided this ain't going to do me any good. And, and fratricide's not a good thing either. So holding on to this is not going to do me any good. So he decides to let it go and show mercy to his brother and, and let bygones be bygones. You know, he thought he had had everything taken away from him when he had the birthright and blessing taken away, right? So, so how does he lose his birthright? Well, he comes in from hunting, he's tired and he's hungry, and he says, I'm going to die if I don't get anything to eat. Give me some of that stew you got there, brother. And, and Jacob's response is, if you'll give me my birthright, the birthright, then I'll give you the stew. And what a jerk. He's his brother. No. But the other side of it is, is, is that Esau said, sure, whatever. And then he eats the food, and then he goes. He's obviously not about to die at all. He's just hungry. So the, the birthright, you could almost say, is a wash because it doesn't actually mean anything. It meant that he would inherit twice as much. So what he got, what he, uh, Jacob, got was a double inheritance by doing that, by getting the birthright. Now, they were twins, but Esau was born first, right? So, so that's the way that it, that it worked itself out there. And so then so he gets the double blessing, the, the double birthright, the double inheritance, sorry. And then how does he get the blessing? Well, he and his mother contrived to steal it because they hear Isaac speaking with Esau and say, look, go out and get some tasty game, make me something to eat, and then I'll bless you. So Rebecca overhears that. She says, hey, run quick, do all these things. Um, then he says, well, so he gets all the food together, and then he says, well, he's going to be able to tell the difference in an instant because my brother's a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. So mom says, all right, get a goat. We'll cut its 
skin off and will put it on you. And when your father touches you, then then he will feel like he's touching the other one. And so that this is exactly how he steals the blessing. And it was thought that the, that the blessing of a father was the most important thing you could have if you were going to succeed in life. You had to get a blessing from your father. And so that's exactly what, what he sought, and, and that's exactly what he stole, and that's exactly what infuriated Esau. But God blessed Esau in that. But it says, Esau I have hated, and yet even then he was blessed in his life. And so where was the justice for Esau? Well, he saw mercy is more important than justice. Here in the parable today, that's not what happens. This just judge doesn't give mercy to the woman. No, he gives her justice. Well, it's what she was owed. Mercy would have been something more than that, but he only does it because he doesn't want her to keep pestering him. And so Jesus says, look, compare that guy who neither fears God nor respects man to God himself. He'll give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. And will he delay long over them? I tell you, he'll give them justice speedily. Well, you know, it, we, can, we can kind of look through history, right? It, it, through through Jew, Jewish history, particularly. Abraham went 25 years waiting for the fulfillment of the only one of God's promises that mattered most to him. That was a child. Joseph was in prison for a long time and separated from his family for a long time. The people waited over 400 years to leave Egypt. The generation in the wilderness was there for 40 years and didn't get to come out. Moses was prohibited from entering the land. The people were in Babylon for 70 years. David waited 20 years for Saul's death so that he could become king, which he had been anointed to be 20 years before that. Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago. So, is, is that speedily? It doesn't feel speedy to me. 2,000 years is an awful long time to wait for that. We see in um, Revelation 6, we see the, the martyrs, the ones who are under the throne in heaven, crying out for justice, crying out that God would, would, would speedily deliver justice for the injustice that they had received in life. And they're given new robes and told, you got to wait a little while. you got to wait a little while. The fullness of all of this hasn't happened yet. In the same way that the Israelites in Egypt were waiting for the fullness of the sin of the Canaanites to fill the land. And so what's the point in all this? Well, the point is, is Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. These, the, the heroes of the faith... All died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So what they're really waiting for is this city. What they really want, what they really wanted, transcended those things that were promised. They were okay with not receiving those things in this life because what they received in eternal life was worth more to them in the same way that Jesus encourages us or actually directs us (laughs) 
to concern ourselves with the things of heaven and things that relate to eternal life. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, which is to say with every part of your being. Listen to a sermon today from a Catholic priest who's down in Mississippi, and he, he talked about the danger of being lukewarm and, the, and the, the alternative to that being love, passionate love for God. Be consumed with God in the same way the bush was, consu- was, was burning but not being consumed by the fire at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses received his call. We're to be that. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's to be consumed with God. And for this life to be consumed by that love. And therefore, that you would be set on fire, I would be set on fire in such a way that other people would see it and they would be drawn to it in the same way that Moses was drawn to the bush that was on fire yet not being consumed by the fire. So we're to be consumed with love for God in the same way that he loves us. And he showed that in sending his son to die on a cross for us, that we might have eternal life and share in his inheritance. That, that kind of powerful love that, that is obsessed with, and then he directs us to move that outward, to love those created in the image of God, as we love ourselves. And so we're, we're pushed into a place where we're to be consumed with love of God and love of those created in his image. So we're not to be lukewarm. We're to be those people. We're not to be like the unrighteous judge. He's comparing there in the same way that he compares with um, fathers. If your if your son asks you for a fish, is the father going to give him a scorpion? You know. So it's that whole idea. Your father knows how to give good gifts, and he's better than than the best father. He's certainly better than the most unrighteous judge. But what he, what Luke tells us is, is, is that he's telling us to persevere in two things, prayer and faith. And then at the end, Jesus says very simply, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find us consumed with bitterness because God hasn't answered our prayers in the way we wanted? Or will he find people who are pursuing him, still hoping, still believing because they know God has the capacity to do it, but also believing that that not just capacity, you know, because that, that's the ethical question now that, that never gets answered in science, it seems, and that is we can do this. The question then becomes, should we do this? So God's able to do anything, but is that what is best for us? In the persevering in prayer, sometimes what happens is God takes that prayer, takes that thing in your life, and, and transforms it and helps you to see it in the right way. And then you can ask a right for things. That's exactly what happens with Job, right? I mean, what does Job want? Job wants justice, right? He wants to understand because none of this makes any sense. And that's what he wants. And then ultimately he comes down to this. He, he believes justice will be done ultimately. And that's exactly the attitude we're to take. He says, I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last he'll stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. He says, I'm going to be like Jacob. I'm going to see God face to face. Even though my body has been corrupted in the grave, I believe in resurrection, and I believe that in my flesh I will see God. 
and I shall see him for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another. He believes in that justice. That's the justice we're called to believe in. Chances are highly unlikely that you will die with everything being tied into little bows and put aside. Yep, not likely, unless you believe leprechauns live at the end of rainbows and that unicorns, you know, are around to give you everything you desire. If you're still looking for that, that genie in the bottle, well, you can stop. You can stop. It's, it's the reason God tested Abraham and said, what's the most important thing to you? And the way he did that was to say, take your son, your only son, the one you love, and take him to the mountain that I'll show you to you and sacrifice him to me there. And Abraham rose up early the next morning and took his son to do just that. We've got to keep the kingdom of God first. We need to set aside our need for justice because what happens is I've seen too many people in my life who have been so consumed with a thing that that thing kept them from actually living life. You know, last week I talked about the desire to go back to normal or to the new normal or to make this the new normal. Well, the, the problem with all of those attitudes is, is it loses sight of the present and fails to live because it's so fixated on something else. And, and it costs them their friends. It costs them their family. It costs them everything because they're obsessed with an outcome. Well, how would you live with it if it never came past? Well, I think it's a question we all have to ask about the grand obsessions in our lives. Is, am I okay with that so that I can live in the present and, and do exactly what Paul tells Timothy to do here in this passage from 2 Timothy three fourteen to 4, 5. He says, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. And, and when he says, so, so you've known it, you've learned it, it's head knowledge, but, but you've gone beyond that. You've firmly believed it. And that means fixed, steadfast. You believed it with all your heart, so much so that you would bet your life on it. He says, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. So it went from just knowing stuff to fully being convicted of something. He says, knowing from whom you learned it. Trust the people. Trust your mother. Trust your grandmother. Trust me. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. His mother was Jewish. So he's known these things from childhood. She raised him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's an extraordinary thing. His father was Greek. So we know that. So mom was responsible. What a woman. What a woman. That she took that responsibility on herself. She must have been a learned woman herself. His grandmother then deserves commendation for the same thing. He says, so you've been acquainted with these sacred writings since childhood, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul affirms the written word. He affirms the Bible. He affirms that these things make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, he says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So in other words, you can confront with it. You can confront sin with it. You can then tell people how to live. That's correction. And then training in righteousness. So turn away from that, but do this. So that's the way we know what good is. It's, it's how we know good and evil. 
He says, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So he says, I charge you in the presence of God to preach the word. And, and that doesn't mean just a preacher, by the way. It means confess, to be like a herald announcing the coming of a king. It's exactly what Jesus sent the disciples to do. When he's going to Jerusalem, he sends them into the cities and the towns ahead of him to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And that's who we're supposed to be. And we're supposed to proclaim it in word and deed. Second thing he says is be ready in season and out of season. And that, that be ready could be stand firm always. So what you firmly believe, stand in that always in season and out of season, whether anybody's looking or not, right? I mean, that's the most important thing in season and out of season when you're alone and when you're with others. So don't wait for the time when you're called to stand and preach these things. No, proclaim this all the time and always be ready. Don't let your guard down. Don't fail. He says, and then he goes on to say that, and then he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are basically the same three things as before about the value of Scripture, because reprove is a sense of exposing something. So reproving is to expose sin, for instance. Rebuking, that word is, is the same word that Jesus, that's used in all the Gospels when Jesus speaks to demons, and also the word that's used when he speaks to the wind to tell it to stop. It's a commandment. So we're to reprove, we're to prove to somebody, we're to show them this is sin, it, as defined by the Word of God. He said, and then we're to go beyond that and we're to rebuke it. We're to, we're to speak that out of existence, to remove it in that way. And then the final thing, exhortation, is something like to call near in the sense of comforting. So to exhort then it is to console, to comfort, to build up. Those others are to expose sin in, in lives, and then to exhort is to put your arm around the sinner and say, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you, sister. And then to encourage them to recognize that there's no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. There's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction causes you to see things God's way and to remove that from your life in order that you might be more pleasing to God and that your relationship with God might be stronger and clearer. Condemnation means there's no hope for me. That's not the point or the purpose of the work of the Holy Spirit is not to condemn, it's to convict in order that we might be drawn back to God and like little lambs wrapped around his shoulders and carried the rest of the way. Paul goes on to say, why should you do these things? Why should you preach the word, be ready in season and out of season? Why should you reprove, rebuke, and exhort? He says this, for the time is coming when people won't endure sound teaching. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. It's exactly the truth in our day. He says they have itching ears, and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, they'll bless the things that you don't want to be convicted of and that you don't want to repent of. They'll call them good when that's a lie, and they'll bless those things that can't be blessed by God. He says they'll, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and you can find that easily today. Go anywhere you like, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
As for you, be sober-minded always. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Just keep on keeping on. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get led astray. Keep doing what you're doing. Paul's a guy who didn't worry about justice in his life at all. He knew God had sorted it all out. He had a long-term view of things. That's what we need to do. We have to, need to have the mind of Christ that takes the long view and believes that God understands things that I can never understand. And I don't know what's good. I know what's good and evil in the eyes of God as far as my conduct's concerned, but I can't truly make sense of anything in my life through the lens of good and evil. Those are tentative judgments that I will make because I don't know enough to truly know those things. So what am I to pursue? I'm to pursue the notion that ultimately God's justice will be done. I may not see it in this life. I may not receive everything that I think he's promised me and told me to pray for. But at the end of the day, I can be okay with that. I can be okay with that. But I have to live every single day to its fullest, making the most of the time to proclaim the coming of the kingdom and to seek him in all that I do and all that I say. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit.